Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. I want to welcome today's guest, which is Yinka Adenaji. He describes himself as a man that wears many hats throughout his entire life. Currently, he's a father, a son, a friend, and an IT specialist, and a speaker at various rallies, protests for racial justice and equal rights. His goal in life is to make sure this world treats his kids and other kids of color a thousand times better than he was treated growing up. I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much, Yinka Adenaji. My pleasure. <laughs> I have to say, I, I uh, had to learn how to say your name, and I appreciate that. I appreciate you uh, being patient and helping me learn how to say your name properly. Well, it's all good. It's all good. You know, it's not your typical, you know, Bob, Mike, and Nancy kind of thing. So, you know, sorry. Yes. Um, so I want to just say thank you for being on the podcast and, and being open to um, having a conversation with me here. And, you know, just to begin, I ask everyone that comes on the podcast just to really start us off with like, when you hear well-meaning white people, um, what does that bring up for you? Or where does that, um, what does that land for you? Well-meaning white people. Uh, yeah, I mean, that tends to kind of you know, pop in my mind, like several things and several descriptions of people, you know, it's like, you know, at some point I, I think of like the, you know, the old 80 year old grandmother or something who grew up in a different generation, a different world. And even though she's trying to be nice, we'll say those kind of weird, you know, underhanded kind of racial comments and not really realizing what she's saying, but like you can't really fault people who you know when you're 80 years old you are who you are and you just kind of have to accept that but then there's also like you know the new generation now of people who are just kind of like I feel like just jumping on the bandwagon <laughs> without truly understanding what it means to change and be an ally and all this because, you know, no matter what you say, there's always going to be this thing of like, you know, you're going to always benefit more because of your skin tone versus somebody else who has, you know, slightly darker shade than you. And so sometimes that just means you have to get a little uncomfortable. And if you aren't able to get uncomfortable, then are you really helping? Are you really, you know, becoming an ally? So that's kind of what I, you know, the duality of what I kind of, when I, when I hear that, so. 
Um, yeah, so that's interesting because that's the intention behind it is kind of feeling into like my own process as someone who's identifies as a you know conscious, aware white person, right? That that grew up in this Indian centric spiritual community that was actually more just classic appropriation at its finest. Um, mm. And it's taken me many years to detangle that false identity in myself, and so suddenly seeing myself as a white person properly and I, I don't mean just white person but like recognizing oh yeah my parents joined an Indian culture but they were actually Swedish and Jewish and I've never kind of been connected to that and it's my responsibility mm -hmm. as someone in that, inhabiting a white body to examine that and be like yeah what what were my ancestors about and to kind of track that right and and so this well-meaning idea is like somebody like me who literally identifies as a spiritual conscious person, but not recognizing the falsity of the cultural identity kind of misnomer that I got that mm. confused my sense of identity. So therefore, I haven't lent my voice in a way mm. that could be helpful to a lot of African people I know and black people I know and all sorts of circles that I've inhabited throughout my life that I just didn't know. I, I didn't know how to help in a way because I wasn't conscious to a perpetuated behavior inside me. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a white woman or just a white person in general, you, you have to be able to recognize your own whiteness, plain and simple. You have to be able to recognize your heritage, where your family, your original culture came from like what was what was their part in you know subjugating other people and rather it was you know you're from England and you you know your family came from subjugating the Irish or the Scottish it's like there's always something that you have to recognize and you know many philosophers and great writers have always quoted that you know unless you learn from your past you're doomed to repeat it and that is true. If we can't recognize our history, we're not going to like move forward in any way. You can't really say, oh, I'm fighting for you if you don't even recognize what's come through you, your lineage. Yeah. So, yeah, people just have to have to acknowledge. And that also goes into this whole idea of a lot of, you know, well-meaning white folks, as <laughs> you can say, who always say they don't see color. And I'm like, that is the worst thing you can say to anybody. You know, don't say, I mean, you're not an ally if you say you don't see color because you have to see color. Color is what is what's around you, what's everywhere, that divides us, what brings us together. You know, it's like, it, we're such a visual community and that's what we see. But if you can't see that somebody looks different than you, then it's like, okay, I mean, I get, the idea of like you want to teach your kids to love everybody and it be inclusive but your kids still have to recognize that oh this person you know this person's asian this person is you know of african descent this person's of latin descent it's like they still have to know that and appreciate that and acknowledge that to negate that is also kind of racist in its own way it's like i don't see your color well if you don't see my color you don't see me 
Oh, big, big. It's so big. And, you know, it, it's in the literature, you know, for white people to kind of start doing anti-racist work, like me and white supremacy and like what that means. Like, I don't see color, but I was literally just on a conversation the other day with another kid that grew up like me in the three, you know, in the Kundalini yoga community. And they said that, right. It's like, and, and literally have a sense of identity of themselves as as an ally in the sense that when they think they're saying that, they think it means something other than the way that it's landing in the bodies of people that they're supposedly think they're helping when they say those things, whether it's their children that might be mixed with other cultures now or, or black or brown, you know, indigenous or Latino friends that they might have or whatever. But again, that's a huge thing that's invisible in plain sight to a lot of white people. And yet black people and white people are like screaming it, been saying it, hello yeah. everybody. And, and it's like a blot, it's like, no, everybody's that kind of like fancy, like, no, we're all one. It's like, that's the ultimate bypass. Yeah. You know, whether it's spiritual bypass or it's called whitewashing or whatever it's called, it's this ultimate place of like, yeah, what I mean by that is I want everyone to love each other. <laughs> right. But what well, you're well, demonstrating is the opposite, right? Yeah. Well, it's, I, I blame, you know, that whole idea from like the hippie area, like a hippie era and stuff like 60s in the 70s, because it was supposed to be the time of love. Everybody, you know, love each other, blah, 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 all this stuff. That's where it stems from because they, you know, that generation wanted to like just see each other as one unity and all this. But like once they all became adults and had to work and have to like start their own families and do all this stuff, it's like their actions became different than what they actually believe. And then that whole idea of like, oh, I don't see color became more of like, you know, a shield from, or not even a shield, more like a barrier, you know, mm. to keep you from actually moving forward into making any changes. And, you know, you just, you teach your kids what you know. So if you don't know any better, you're only going to teach as little, if nothing, after that. So I don't know. I mean, it might no, be wrong I, to say blame that generation. No, <laughs> it's a really great point because again, I'm I'm locating it in spiritual communities, but spiritual mm -hmm. communities were a spawn of that same hippie culture that you're identifying, right? And what's also powerful to to, to name here is that the liberation movement that was happening, the black liberation movement, the Vietnam War, the fem quote feminist white feminist movement at that time. Mm -hmm. And I'm qualifying it as white feminist movement because it got kind of coupled into the every other movement. That's another conversation. <laughs> um, but I'm saying that because to name it the way you just did, Yinka, is amazing because saying, wow, love, peace, we're all one, you know, just kind of that, that morphed into kind of spiritual pedagogy of any kind, Buddhist, whether it's Kundalini, whatever the type. Um, yeah. And then it's a spiritual bypass of just saying, that's a construct, the soul sees no color, but that's not the reality. And so if we want to play back in reality and not these false bypasses to real liberation movements, that are still mm -hmm. happening today because there's not much difference of what was happening in the 60s to what's happening right now. Yeah. Well, you know, religion and spirituality is always 
used as a way to say that I'm not racist. I can't be racist. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Sikh. I'm this. I'm that. It's like, I can't be racist. It's like, you can. Religion doesn't, you know, disqualify you from being a racist in any way. And spirituality doesn't give you a pass for being, you know, racist in any way. And it's always funny to me when you have a lot of, you know, just, you know, white people that will go into, you know, Buddhism, another tradition that's not white, and yet try to like, you know, hone in on that, take all the lessons, do all this, and then, you know, come back into their own society and still perpetuate certain learned behavior, you know, certain thoughts in any spiritual. I, I mean, I feel like if you're a spiritual person, if you don't do the work to not be racist, then no matter what religion or spiritual practice you go into, all you're doing is just putting a covering over those beliefs. And at some point, those beliefs are going to come back out. They're going to like be expressed and you're not going to be this you know, ally, spiritually awoke person that you think you are. You're just basically, you know, perpetuating, you know, like here in the U.S., the whole like KKK thing. And, you know, it's like, that's just, you know, that is also something they consider them themselves, you know, this religious group who are trying to make the country, you know, I don't know, in the name of God. And it's, it kind of yep. sucks that so many wars and evil things are always done in the name of God. So. Well, in the history of that that colonial extraction, right, Mm -hmm. in the name of, you know, in that, in Christianity specifically. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well said. I'm I'm sure you can can have a whole discussion with uh, any Native American about (laughs) that whole idea of like, oh, yeah, you've got to come to our white religion and forget about your culture altogether. And if you don't, we'll kill you. Like, what is that? <laughs> well, and, you know, very much in, in every African country as well. I mean, the colonialist, you know, uh, and using religion to, to, to really perpetuate the imperialistic and colonial yeah. agenda in that capacity. Well, you know, the more converts they have, the better place they have in heaven, apparently. So that's that's the whole yes. thing. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm sure you can speak to that, you know, far more than, than I can. I mean, I, you know, you I grew that? up. Yeah, I mean, like, I grew up in, you know, as a Christian, I mean, that, that's, that's, you know, I do, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, but, uh, you know, to this day, I always say I have a lot of like Christian beliefs that I still hold on to that I like, but I feel that I'm more spiritual because I am aware enough that there's more than one way to get connected to a higher power, to God, the universe, whatever you want to say. And so I don't ever feel like my way is the right way. And, you know, being an African immigrant, like religion was such a big deal. Like I left Nigeria when I was four and not by my choice, but my parents decided to drag me to this country. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I kind of had a different route into kind of understanding, you know, religion, race and all this than most other kids who were born and raised here. So like, when I when we moved here, I was we moved to Arkansas, and basically it was like a majority ninety percent white people everywhere. Like I was barely ever saw another black person, and you know as a child I didn't really notice any kind of you know 
like microaggressions, race, any like avert, like racism. And, but like, I felt like I didn't really start feeling any kind of prejudices against me until actually I moved to Dallas. And funny enough, those prejudices came from the black community more than the white community. And it was mostly because they felt that I was too white sounding for them, too proper for them, too educated for them, which wasn't really anything that I'm trying to do. It's just that's how my parents, you know, were raising me. So I had no choice in it. So like finding friends, you know, within the black, black community was hard for me as a child. So like my brother and I mostly just hung out with each other. And, you know, then like, as I got older, okay, I started hanging out with more, you know, black kids in the community who weren't so like close-minded and, you know, expected everybody to sound like they're from the hood or the ghetto or speaky bonics. I'm like, I don't, that's not me. I just, you know, I grew up, you know, listening to the Queen's English and hearing that. And, you know, that's how I did it. But, mm -hmm. you know, but I always had these blinders on that anybody could ever be that like racist. Like the only time I ever saw anything like that was on TV, watching some movie or something. And, but, you know, my first experience at somebody judging me specifically from the white community as my color was like, my mom and I went to the grocery store and I can remember just kind of wandering around the store by myself a couple of times because I didn't want to stand behind her while she, you know, went through each aisle. So I just kind of took off and I probably did that for like five, 10 minutes and didn't really notice that they had their security guard kind of like following me around because literally I was the only, you know, black kid in the store with his black mother or African kid with his African mother. And, uh, mm -hmm. When we were checking out, as we're about to leave the store, he came with another officer there or security guard and started accusing me of stealing something. And I just remember kind of like sitting there like dumbfounded, like, what are you talking about? I didn't steal anything. And he's just like yelling and threatening me. And I'm probably like maybe eight or nine years old at the time. And so then like, you know, my mom was like, you know, she started getting mad thinking I actually did something. And then she asked me to like empty out my pockets. Every pocket was completely empty. I had nothing. And so it was like, you're just accusing me because you see this black kid walking around the store and you just think he's automatically going to steal something. And without any like evidence, no video, nothing. He didn't actually see me doing it. He just decided to just accuse me. And that was like, you know, what the F, you know, it's like, you know, but yeah, I mean, even then I still wasn't like, kind of like shaken by it, you know, it was just more like, wow, this guy really thought that I stole something. That's how I thought. I didn't think, oh, this white man thought that me as a person of color, you know, did something wrong. I mean, that aspect didn't change until later on. And, Can I ask, was there a moment yeah. where your mom then believed you? And then she said to the guys, oh, yeah. like, was like, how did that go oh, yes. like that? Yeah. But when my mom actually, she started, <laughs> when she noticed that I didn't take anything, basically, you know, just went off on the guys and just, she was completely livid. And, you know, my mom's normally like a very quiet, doesn't really like confrontation kind of thing, but you know, she's, you know, this is where I get it from. If you mess with my family or somebody close to me, 
you know, it's, it's, we kind of have this thing of like, even God can't protect you from our wrath kind of thing. That's how we kind of, you know, it's like, don't piss off an African mother. You know, that's, that's just, you know, and I, it's like, like my grandmother, like, you know, I'm a 45 year old man and I am literally more afraid of my grandmother who is like 80 some 90 years old than I am of my own mother. You know, it's like, I, I'm more worried about her and she's still in Africa. And it's like, <laughs> I still got to think about it. She just instilled this like power and like this like discipline thing that I'm like, oh man, I cannot, if I do this, if my grandmother would find out, oh my, I am dead. Like, well, what is she going to do? She can't swing a bat or anything. <laughs> You're talking it's about the power that. of the African family, right? The, the, yeah. Uh, I mean, especially uh, the, women. The, the women, uh, the women, <laughs> yes. the women lineage. And oh, so your mom, sure. right? And so your, do you remember your mom's saying specifically to them, like, just because my son is, you know, a black kid, don't do like, was that the conversation you remember your mom saying to them? Yeah, she said something similar to that. I mean, I don't remember the exact words, but I remember she said something like that. And she's like, unless you have evidence, you know, like if you actually, unless you have someone who actually saw him do it or a video of him doing it, don't, just don't accuse him again. You know, okay. and she basically, she left as, you know, if I see you, you know, around my son again, I'm going to sue you in the store kind of thing. So, yes. You know, it was, Very good. it was kind of, she stepped up, which, you know, I don't remember seeing her get that fiery a lot growing up, but you know, she was protecting her child. So that's right. <laughs> yeah. But like my, the whole aspect of racism changed when, for me, when I started going into junior high school and there's two specific incidences that I remember that changed my vision and idea of like, you know, like actually even like, you know, white people being a threat to me, which it's, it's weird to th like think about that. But like, as a child, I, it, I had these incidents that happened. So like the first incident, I was probably 12, 13 years old. And we, you know, we had a lot of like, so just to kind of give you background. So I grew up in a very well-to-do rich suburb school district in Dallas, Texas. And so, like, you know, everybody knew all the cops in the town. Everybody knew most of the kids. I mean, this was a place where, you know, if you were an athlete playing football or basketball or anything, if you get stopped by the police, they wouldn't even give you a ticket. They give it to your coaches and the coaches deal with your punishment kind of thing where everybody pretty much knew everybody. And so there wasn't really like a lot of trouble or crime or that much stuff going on. But this at this time, there was this one kid, a particular kid that would was part of some gang that was down in South Dallas or something. And he started getting into stealing cars. So imagine he's like 13, 14 years old. He steals cars. And he had this bad habit of always bringing the cars to the junior high school parking lot and parking it, you know, in the school parking lot. And so like all the kids knew about this and, you know, a lot of us would always like after school or something or before school, if he had a car there, everybody would go by, see what the latest thing he took kind of thing. And, you know, and this one time I was walking back from football practice and me and a buddy of mine, Donald had uh, walked by the car. And by the time we got down the, the steps and the hills from my school, it was the wildest scene you can ever imagine happening to you personally. There was probably over a dozen police officers who were hiding in various places, 
show up and surround us to two little boys, you know, 13 years old. And they come out and they're like SWAT cars, they're police cars, all with the guns drawn on us. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? It's like, you know, I'm just like, and, you know, one of them came up and started telling us to like get on the ground kind of thing and all this. And, you know, they went through our books, our, our backpacks to like see if we had like, you know, anything in there. And I just remember like trying to like say something and being told to shut up and, you know, not to say anything. And it, it's not even the way that the cops like treated me and Donald. It was when I looked back up at the school, I saw like teachers that I knew and had classes with. And I saw our, you know, resource officer who's a police, the Dallas police officer who every morning I would say hi to, give him a high five. You know, he would ask me like after after every football game, like how I played and all that. Somebody that I thought I could trust, you know, and knew me just standing up there watching. So it's like all these people and of course all white, just not saying anything. It wasn't like they didn't come to my aid or Donald's aid to say, Oh, these kids aren't, they don't, they, you know, they're good kids. They're not, you know, they didn't do anything, blah, 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 all this stuff. And it just like, that broke me as a child, not the way these guys were pointing guns at me, but the fact that people that I thought I mm. trusted were just sitting there, not doing mm. anything. Mm. And, you know, eventually after like 30, 40 minutes, they realized that we weren't the kids that stole the car because, you know, as great as our police forces are around the world, they don't ever think to look at the evidence all the time. The kid that stole the car actually used the the car phone <laughs> and called his mother, his own mother from the car several times. And it's like, well, let's see, his mom where he lives is in South Oak Cliff. This is, you know, North Dallas, two different areas. So it's like, there's something a little off there. Why would kids be walking home if they live? I mean, it's like a five hour walk if you walk home from here, but it's just, that's the thing. It's like, I was freaked out for such a long time. I mean, I was like quiet when I finally got to go and, you know, I'm walking home and I remember coming into the house and of course, you know, my, my dad was kind of like, why am I late kind of thing? You know, you should be, you should have been home like an hour ago. And so then I'm explaining to him what just happened. And he was just like, oh, no, no. So we told him to get in the car. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-oh, what is he going to do? He got me in a car and we went straight to the police station. And he literally is dragging me into the police station and he's cussing out every single officer, wanting to talk to whoever was in charge. I don't remember who. And, you know, at the time, my dad was like, he was a like a mortgage broker. So he had a lot of like, and also worked at a bank. So he had a lot of like contacts and influential, you know, people in his pocket in the community. And he just went off threatening these cops. I mean... I was kind of like, okay, you're like the only black man in here. <laughs> like, like, officers. And he's just yes. basically going off. And he's like, if I he goes, if I ever hear that you guys, any of y'all, stop my kid or point a gun at him, 
he was like, you guys will never work another day in any field, you know, again, kind of thing. And I was just like, all right. I mean, you know, I guess he could step up every now and then. Wow. <laughs> but it was kind of weird because like all these people, they were shook. They really were shook about it. They did not really expect, you know, somebody to come in. I mean, I, it's, I don't even know if it was even like a black or white thing, but it's just like the passion of somebody like defending their child. Standing you know, up for and, their son. Yes. Yeah. I, I really want yeah. to point out that, that there's, um, there's a real cultural difference that's being illuminated here that's that you've talked about in a couple different ways. One is the relationship of Africans to African Americans, right? To black people mm -hmm. of, of what they call foundation uh, black mm -hmm. Americans. And then um and then the relationship of of the family, the African family. Like, and you've had two mm -hmm. stories where the, you know your mom, you know, stands and then your dad <laughs> stands and and mm -hmm. how much that fabric hasn't existed in the generational uh, history of black uh, Americans, but purposely that when we actually look yeah. at it, it actually was quite purposely dismantled and mm -hmm. disassembled as a part of a strategy. And so that's, it's, it's so much, but you're illuminating something so important, which is how parents stand for their children, because that's how yeah. it works. If you don't have a father mm -hmm. in the household and you don't, you don't, have that level of protection so things mm -hmm. that are not acceptable can go on in community and culture that would never go on if there's strong family units that are allowed to form yeah and that, you know like perfectly said that it was deliberately done i mean the slave owners would separate children from parents husbands from wives you know just decimate you know the family because they knew when the closer the families are, the harder it would be for them to keep them subjugated for that long. And so they literally, I mean, there's studies upon this and yeah, it's incredible. But then that whole aspect of separating families did kind of continue on and perpetuate the idea of like, you know, oh, the black father kind of thing is always like, you know, either in jail or he disappears or he's dead or something. And it's like, that's just not the case i mean every culture has that every race has a level of that but it's just you know people want to point out it's like it's always a black thing it's like well it's not really a black thing but it was created by you know the dominant white slave owners you know back in the day they knew that they would lose power if there was a strong family unit yeah, and those systems of oppression and targeting the Black family continued into policy mm -hmm. in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, mm -hmm. and specifically 80. as like a 80s, <laughs> thank you, and, and probably far more than I'm naming, much probably much mm -hmm. earlier in terms of the dismantling of that strong family unit, because there were so many communities that found that that were, I say we're, that white people, well-meaning white mm -hmm. people are waking up to realize that, wow, these communities have existed throughout time that those sustainability and have been purposely destroyed mm -hmm. um in the name of civilization so oh saying, yeah it's a bit of political yeah. thing it's it's a big political issue because you know when you know the black community started gaining more freedom and more financial freedom and more political power it was harder for white politicians to find ways to control the growing, you know, black population, the growing black communities. 
and, and so circulation the, of their own economy and their own circulating yes. economy, their own post office, mm-hmm. their own their own thriving economies and trades. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's like it, if you can't, so you know they couldn't use certain terms or language anymore, and they couldn't just you know outright go out and do certain things. You know, it became more like let's use politics to you know keep them under control. So everything from like the drug war issue or anything like that's been all these drug policies were aimed for black communities, you know, and it was used in such a way that even if you weren't involved in actual like drugs or gang, but you were in the area, they had a police had every right to arrest you. So you had lots of kids being thrown into jail and then because they can't afford a good lawyer they get stuck in a system for, you know, it could be for years to decades before finally someone's like, oh, you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, we're sorry for that. Here's some money. You can go. And it's just that's there's so many stories like that, that because they use these policies to put people in jail, families were broken. So, of course, there's these like generations of young, you know, black girls and boys who didn't have a father because they were pulled out of the house for some dumb reason. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's incredible that people want to have that kind of power and control over another human being. It's like, I always had this, I've had this discussion with a lot of my, you know, Christian friends when it comes to religion, especially over the last like four, five years. And uh, I'm always like, with everything that's happening and with your belief of of heaven, it's like, do you really think that when you go up to heaven that, you know, St. Peter's is going to be at the gate and be and going to ask you, so, you know, how many people did you keep from coming into your house that you, you know, that you saved? How many people did you not feed and blah, blah, blah? How much money did you make just for yourself? It's like, well, he wouldn't ask me that. He would ask me. I'm like, yeah, he wouldn't ask you that because... That's not the point of getting to heaven. Heaven is taking care of each other, loving each other, you know, helping the person who can't afford, you know, food or whatever. It's like you taking care of your fellow man. It's like you can't say you're a Christian if everything you're doing is negating, you know, what is in the Bible. I mean, when was the last time you heard about like Jesus, you know, slamming a door on somebody that was poor that needed like a handout? He would never do that. He was out there with the sick and the poor. He didn't like the rich. But for some reason, this generation, this time, it's like, oh, Jesus apparently loves the rich and hates the poor. Like, okay. (laughs) Who's writing (laughs) that narrative? (laughs) I mean, we're not even going to get on this whole subject of like him all of a sudden becoming white in a world of brown people. But, you know, it's 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 such a good one. Yeah. And that, you know, and that representation matters, like to say out loud, there is no way at this time period in this region of the world that there is a white paled body. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I remember being a teenager and going to Russia and seeing Mm -hmm. the Russian Orthodox churches and it was brown. (laughs) No, it was a black Jesus with woolly hair and all of the wise men were black were brown, just like the region represents because it was so old. And I remember just being like, thank God, thank God nobody (laughs) painted over this to pretend that it was white. 
because mm-hmm. that's what this area of Siberia was. And I, and, yeah. but on that note, what history has taught us, right, is they would have painted over those murals and made those people mm-hmm. not woolly hair, you know, because it was a different, it's like, that cultural lie embedded, the myth of, of supremacy is embedded and used through religion throughout all time. It's like what all colonialism is rooted in. So it's like, you say it, well, never mind the fact that he somehow paled out talking about God himself, you know, much less all the other systems we could talk about that got paled out yeah. over time. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's like, you know, maybe like it is 20 years of wandering where the Bible loses track of him, he must have been like finding some whitening process or something. <laughs> um, oh, and, and, and yet it's not funny because what it means mm-hmm. is that historians throughout time have purposely yeah. done these things. And so the reason we're so confused now is because the information has purposely and predatorily been disseminated incorrectly in the name mm-hmm. of power, right? In the name of power yeah. and money. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, at the time, you can't, like, think that why would somebody who would look like a Roman be born to parents who are Hebrew? <laughs> it's like, that's not possible. But yet, it, it's because <laughs> that, like, you know, whoever's in power gets to decide what is the images. Put out there, what the images, everything. I mean, I mean, even look at, like, you know, what is it, like, that used to, people used to always use the King George, King James version of the Bible. And like King James is like was one of the worst freaking kings ever, you know, in the history of England. But yet it's his version of the Bible that most churches use for generations. And it was like that's it just shows you that people don't question a lot of things. And that's one of my issues with religion is that you it's too dependent upon one person's idea and interpretation of what is in whatever sacred text. It's like a lot of people frown upon you reading the text and learning for yourself, which that has always been a way of like a lot of the colonial, uh, colonial like, you know, I don't really want to like, they're the explorers. <laughs> when they Early colonialists. Like, yeah, <laughs> where they go out and like, you know, they want to, educate you but yet it's like if you actually read their own like scriptures and everything it causes you to start like asking questions i mean if you look at every native person every african person once they started actually being allowed to read and learn to read there was a lot of questions and people who empower don't want question they just want you to be good little sheep and follow along so then you have people who want control and they'll start telling you, hey, you know, as a white person, you don't want this black or brown person to be educated because then they'll do this, this, and this. And then it's like, okay, instead of them actually going out and educating themselves or learning for real what another culture is like, they just believe this person because he has status, he has power, he has money, you know, and then it just starts, you know, snowballing. and. And I think that is something even to this day that still happens that people like they don't want to go and learn anything it's like finding out information is just too hard. And of course, we all know 
if you look up on the internet, everything you read on the internet is 100% true. You know, and that's just, you know, thinking for yourself is never, you know, it's not a good thing because that makes you an outlier. <laughs> so like, you just kind of have to, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, you're, you're just bringing up critically thinking, you know, it's like yeah. if all you've ever been exposed to and then you believe that, but you've never stopped to be like, gosh, is what they taught me true? And you start, mm-hmm. you have to, you have to be willing to expose yourself to the possibility of the things you've come to learn are not true, right? Mm-hmm. And and pierce that bubble so that mm-hmm. you get out of your sphere of influence, right? Whether it's getting out of oh, yeah. traveling somewhere around the world, but you know, mm-hmm. so we know so many people, let's say in in American context, have learned that the world revolves around the United States of America. You know, like let's take it out of the context of you know the racial demographic of mm-hmm. that, but like even just from a worldly point of view. Yeah, the world doesn't rotate around USA, and yet that narrative kind of is built into that again, mm-hmm. imperialistic, and could be rooted and, and traced to that white agenda, right? That whiteness history of of mm-hmm. these nation states that that uh, hold power today, so to speak. Oh yeah, it, it is kind of a America first kind of mentality, and you know, I remember when uh, Obama was running, I was living in New Zealand at the time. And it was like, I don't know, early, early in the morning. And I remember the the reports came in that he had won, you know, the presidency. And the funniest thing, I mean, which was, I guess it's like a normal norm for them. Like people would just be like, oh my God, the US is finally joining the rest of the world by, you know, electing a leader who's not an old white man kind of thing. And like, I'm hearing native, like Kiwis and Maori folks all like, oh my God, the US may be finally turning a corner kind of thing. And it was just kind of incredible be, you know, you know, an American, basically an American citizen coming there and being like, oh, I've always thought that the US was kind of like, you know, the leader of a lot of things, but like listening to their reaction, it's like, that is a problem in the US. You know, we are too overconfident and believe way too much in ourselves versus like, you know, I, I, I always compare it to like the Japanese culture where their culture is like, we before the I. You know, they care more about the community, the country and all this versus just like themselves. But lately, they've been also influenced, too, by the U.S., the mentality of the U.S. So you see a lot of young people not following the tradition because they want to be more Americanized. They're mm-hmm. doing things that traditionally has not worked for the country because they want to be Americans. But, you know, mm-hmm. maybe there'll be an upswing. But, yeah, Americans definitely have. We're a little overconfident. I mean, I, I truly believe that. And, you know, and I'm a guy that played sports most of my life. So confidence really helps, you know, when you're playing sports. But, yeah, you know, at certain times, you have to be I humble. Think, you have to- <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think you, you, you're you quite, um, you're extending a lot of grace when you say confidence rather than say arrogance. Because I think that would be more like the international mm-hmm. lens to mm-hmm. what we actually are versus who we think we are mm-hmm. and it's not our fault i want to say quote as collective americans in that it's been very much a part of the social agenda over the last 30 40 50 years and you can begin to track this just like you can begin to track what's actually happened in 
in black and, mm-hmm. and, and, and white history in our nation that we haven't been exposed to mm-hmm. through public schools. But we can also track kind of like the propaganda machine that mm. became what is known as the United States of America. And it had that wealth because of the long history of, of slavery in this country. And so to kind of pretend like everything went away when integration happened is a yeah. white illusion that I think a lot of well-meaning white people live in because mm-hmm. their generation, let's say my parents' generation, got a kind of escape into the hippie land and like you said earlier in this podcast never actually do the work of dismantling some of the very very racist ideologies that they grew up around Mm -hmm. listening to on their television sets as the usa war machine kind of was getting bolstered over the years and creating this kind of imperialistic worldly international perspective while Mm -hmm. also kind of gaining the good old american way kind of persona and um in that is very very rooted mythologies around white supremacy kkk and stuff that is well-meaning white people that might be kids of that generation we have no fucking clue ladies and gentlemen like i want you to listen to yinka's story and listen to some of these other podcast stories as a way to pierce your veil of realizing you haven't been educated because your parents got to skate their way about out of getting educated just like yeah. my parents did. And we're all in this collectively together to be like, we got to unnumb because black people already know this and we are the slow <laughs> ones to catch up, right? Oh yeah. And it's true. <laughs> I mean, you know, whoever has the power controls what gets put out there, the narrative, the education. And I mean, like you said, you've, you've seen it constantly where, you know, what is taught in the schools becomes a political battlefield you know, teaching real American history is like, no, they don't want that. I mean, I've I've seen reports and documentaries where they, you know, some school district literally will go into their history books and remove the pages dealing with like, you know, slavery and, you know, the civil rights movement, because they didn't want to poison and confuse the kids. I'm like, not yeah. telling them is poisoning and confusing the kids. <laughs> well, I read something, Yinka, that said they don't want white people to feel guilty. Like it literally said that. And I, I couldn't <laughs> believe that in a political, that it could actually be mm-hmm. written out loud in plain sight like that, because that's, that's what it is. It's like, if we actually find out what our lineage of folks did, because it's horrible, we would actually start to realize what black and indigenous and people of all sorts of colors around the world that have been imperial, you know, colonized have been saying a long, long, long time, right? It's a much larger conversation than just what's happening in the United States. But I can't even believe that was in print. Like, how do you say that? But that's what the I mean, whole CRT conversation easy. really is. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, you know, you're in this conversation. Yeah, I mean that. It, yeah, I mean, people will say things and admit to things, and yet everybody would just like overlook it. I mean, there was like, was, yeah, was we don't year. want little Johnny to feel bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We want Johnny to feel the weight of this. So that mm. he doesn't want to perpetuate this any longer in any forward generation. Yes, we need to collectively yeah. reckon. 
you know, that, that reminds me of the, uh, there was a, a news interview with one of the archdiocese or something in, in, uh, in Rome. And the reporter had asked, uh, asked, the, <laughs> asked the bishop if like, uh, so tell me the truth about hell. I mean, what, what, you know, where did that get started? When did that come up and become a thing? And he was like, I mean, he just sit there looking at the guy, totally serious. He's like, yeah, the Catholic Church back in the day just made that up because they wanted to have more control over people. And I'm like, okay, you know, this is like seriously like, you know, like a revolutionary thing where somebody within the inner circles of the church tells you that the church made up this whole idea of hell to cause a fear in people and get them to show up in church more and then give their tithe and sign away their life and their, you know, their money to the church. And, you know, I, I say this, like, for me, I feel like there's like three major things that will force people to change or react. And the, you know, the first one is just like, you know, their heart, like just the goodness of their heart, because they know it's the right thing to do. That will make somebody change when they see something that is completely like not right. That's just unethical. But the problem is there's not many people who react to that. Mm -hmm. Then there's fear. People will react and make a major change according to fear. And of course, you know, the black community, the brown community, the Native Americans have all felt how the change because of fear feels. Because when the white man and the white community starts fearing somebody of color, it's not a like pleasant, oh, here's something, here's a you know letter to say, can you please stop doing this? No, it's like a extermination type mentality, whether it's to like wipe out the communities, you know put people in jail, anything, you know, just get people to move out. I mean, you look, you see like, even like in the real estate market, it's like people pricing out homes and making it so hard for, you know, people of color to really own homes. And so it's like the fear from the white community becomes this like engine of like all their policies, all their changes. And then the third is guilt. Now, guilt I feel like it's the one thing that can make a positive change in people. And I think guilt is needed. I mean, if you feel guilty about something, it eats at you. It tears you down, your soul down. And you want to make some kind of like amends to make that feeling go away. So I feel like people need to feel guilty about their history, their past, in order to find a way to alleviate that and go and then move forward positively. I mean, it's not like, it's not you're punishing yourself. It's just more of like acknowledging that. And it is a guilt, you know, you have to feel that. It's like, you know, you may not have been the one that, you know, pulled the chains or like sailed the boat or, you know, did all the lynching or whatever, but it's part of your history. You can feel guilty about your history, you know? You know, I could look at like all the different tribes in my country who fought and sold people that they, you know, that from like different tribes that they, you know, defeated and sold them into slavery within the country or something. You know, I can I can recognize that as part of my history, you know, and I acknowledge that I kind of feel guilty that maybe possibly my family history, somebody made money off of that, 
you know, somehow. So it's like, we're not all free of guilt. So acknowledge it. Yeah. That will help and you move forward. You're just, oof. I just wanted to say, in in all that, you know, <laughs> A, a change of heart or like from this place of like love, like wanting to make that change from fear, right? And, and, and then from guilt. And <laughs> I want to add on top of guilt is shame and wrapped mm. in with guilt is shame. And how what you're saying here is so necessary because it's very easy to get frozen and paralyzed mm. when we're overwhelmed in guilt and shame and we start to really yeah. examine like holy Toledo. And what it requires is those of us that are in white bodies that we have to mm. be doing capacity building to be learning how do we do this work because mm. we can't bring our guilt to our friends called our black friends and our indigenous friends and be like, Whoa, because it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. And yet that's kind of been a part of the anti-racist conversation is that unconsciously a part of the long history of this kind of like um, white bodies have regulated themselves emotionally on mm-hmm. black bodies and that no longer is acceptable. And so suddenly more and more black bodies and indigenous bodies are saying, no, no, you don't get to use us in this way. You mm-hmm. used to be able to use us in this way and no more. And white bodies are going like, what do you mean? And that's a valid place of terror to be in if yeah. you're if you're in a white body listening mm-hmm. but at the same time this is why we need inclusive spaces among us yeah. so that we begin to build a white bodied culture that isn't rooted in historical racism that isn't rooted in hatred that isn't rooted in trying to take over agency of the black body and we mm-hmm. might not even know what a lot of those things mean but think about in any of our historical lineage we could have have brothers and sisters and uncles and cousins that witness lynching as a regular part of the day. And so yeah. what if that what if that lives in your family tree? And what if you yeah. identify as a spiritual person and you have that to reconcile? It could be an Irish lineage, it could be a this lineage, a Swedish lineage, it could be any of these lineages, depending on what our ancestry and how they migrated and how their yeah. subsistence brought you to today right? Their Mm -hmm. family and their generation. So just like Black people have a story of where did their families migrate from? You know, white people have these same stories and we could have inadvertently be participated in histories that are very violent. So it's Mm -hmm. natural to have guilt and shame when we learn this. And then what do we do about it is a part of why these conversations are existing is so that as a white body of culture, or a black body of culture, or whatever culture you're in, you can say, oh, I got unique work in my body, different mm-hmm. than maybe Yinka does or different than this person does, but it's still my historical and present day work. Yeah, that, that's that's totally true. I mean, as far as like, the you know, getting the guilt and stuff, you know, and reconciled with like your history and your past, like give you an example, like I, I was asked, couple of times to be part of this whole reparations thing. And I always kind of felt like, do I really want to be involved in your reparation procedures? Because it just feels more that more like, you know, I mean, just 
give you just bluntly how I was thinking. It was like, it just seems like all you white folks just want to like say that you're, you know, how you felt and what's going on and like, just like absolved yourself of your own guilt, but not actually take care of like what you actually did, like not really acknowledge your part in playing in, you know, my suffering at all. And it was like, that's, I feel like when somebody white talks about, oh, we should do reparations, we should do this. It's like, do you really understand what that means? It's not to just say, oh, well, it's me. I'm just this poor white person who just like didn't know better and didn't blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, come on. You know, you did some shitty things to people and just you got to walk away and left them devastated, destroyed and feeling fearful of the next white person. It's like you can't just be like, feel, just acknowledge your feelings. You got to acknowledge their feelings. You can't just talk about your actions. You got to acknowledge, you know, their actions to your, you know, your words. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, I think guilt is important, but like be right guilt, you know, be the right white guilt. <laughs> and and where you direct that, how you start reconciling yeah. it. And I don't think mm -hmm. What I've been noticing is that a lot of well-meaning white folks don't know that they ooze onto their friends and make mm -hmm. their emotional regulation as a part of yeah. uh, their black and indigenous peoples like in their lives responsibility because mm -hmm. we don't have a history of learning to emotionally regulate ourselves when it comes to racial conversations. Yeah. So the ways yeah, that we get, <laughs> isn't that interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was I, on a I call feel... once. Oh, go ahead. No, I was, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, so I was, well, I was on a call once where this woman had asked, white woman had asked about how to, you know, approach her black neighbor, you know, uh, because she saw that, you know, she was, I guess, pregnant and all this stuff. And she didn't really know how to like approach her to be friends and stuff. Okay. So pause, and, pause, yeah. pause. So we're getting contact. A, you're <laughs> on a business call. You're on some sort of a Zoom call. And a white woman asks you because of who you are about mm -hmm. a neighbor she has who is black. Yeah. Well, I had, well, so there was, this was a, I can't remember what the purpose of the call was, but it was, there was <laughs> only two black people or people of color on this whole call. It was me and another black woman, and uh, everybody else was white. <laughs> so it's probably like thirty to two. So, and, and so you know, she was telling this whole story about her neighbor and how she's just kind of, you know, she's trying to like say hi to her, approach her, or whatever. But the woman's been very like just, you know, I guess just very like cold to her or something. And so she just wanted to know how you know, she could help out and, and kind of be friends. And, you know, me and this other black woman are kind of like, well, I mean, you can't really make her like you. I mean, and I remember, you know, <laughs> my, uh, my fellow black woman over here on the side was like, she said, you have to understand, black people aren't looking for white friends to add to their, you know, collection of people close to them. You know, it seems like white people are wanting to have more black friends and people of color to like show their non-racist, you know, world that they actually like live in. 
And so I, I, when she said that, I was like, that is so true. I mean, I don't go around trying to like say, oh, you're white. Can I be your, can you be my friend kind of thing? It's like, no, but then I'm also very, I'm, I'm a different kind of person too. I kind of feel like I like people, but I don't like people. <laughs> it's like, you know, I feel like your close friends are like, there's specific people that can be close friends. I don't care if they're white, black, brown, yellow, green, purple, whatever, but it's like, what resonates to you as far as like, you know, what's important in a friendship. And like, for me, I'm like, if somebody, if I want someone like a new friend, I want someone that I know is like loyal, is like real, is not gonna like bullshit me, is not gonna like sugarcoat shit. You know, I want somebody that's going to be in my life to like call me out on my shit because that helps me grow as a person and then vice versa. I feel like those things are important, but like having this whole superficial thing of like, oh, you're white, you're black, then, you know, we should be friends. Like, no, that's not going to happen because how do I know I can trust you? How do I know when like if the cops show up at my door and they think I did something, are you going to be there to like stand in the way of a bullet for me kind of thing? Are you going to be there to like yell at the cops? You know, which, I mean, that seems dramatic, but like, I mean, I've had experiences with cops, even here in New Mexico, where, you know, I tell people like the state troopers, I love the state troopers, the state, yeah, state troopers of New Mexico, because they, if they pull me over, they're actually educated enough to like have a conversation with the person, talk to the person, see what's going on. Why were you speeding? Where were you going? Oh, how was your day? All this, it's like just normal human interaction. But the city cops and the sheriffs feel like they had no education outside of high school. And it's just like, just stern, cut you off, just like treat you like you're, you know, already did something bad and like threatening. And, you know, there's a huge difference between you know, an officer walking towards your vehicle with his hand already on his gun versus someone just walking with their hands out. And that's like the major difference I've seen between the state troopers and the city cops. City cops, their hands are always on their gun when they approach anybody. And that's like, that's very threatening. I mean, just even a normal person will feel threatened, but like a black person, a person of color, that heightens that fear even more. So, you know. Yes. Yeah, yes. I kind of went into different tangents. I want to like, go yeah. back to the lady when she says to you, yeah. I want you to understand that <laughs> black people aren't looking to be friends with white people. Um, this is such a perfect, prolific thing to put a pin in here mm. because, you know, there's there's this whole like, you know, in 2020, George Floyd, a lot, there was kind of this mm. like great white awakening, so to speak, right? And white mm. people start to hear things that black communities, I've known for decades, you know, and they're kind yeah. of like, welcome aboard the train, folks. And <laughs> and so there ends up kind of like being all this. And this, this isn't, again, to shame any anybody who woke up to information in, in 2020, but it is important to context as a white body of culture, let's say, all mm. spread out and, and confused as we may be, um, that learning about things for the first time can spawn in us a natural wanting to be in connection and wanting mm. a friendship. And yet with that also has to come this really fascinating, invisible line that we have to begin to recognize has always been there in benefit of us mm. as white bodies. 
So this was like kind of the beginning of the dismantling of starting to see privilege everywhere you go, which takes a little while sometimes to get that bubble pierced if you've always lived in a world where you saw what you saw instead of mm. seeing what's actually there. And even from a trauma-informed place, this is true. We can be in a frozen state where we are really quite not conscious to things and in a state of cognitive dissonance to things that have always been there, whether it's sexual abuse in our family lineage or whether it's you know racial uh, systems that are all around us and that we perpetuate by our participation in them. Um, so her saying that, I want to just point this out because even... I think a lot of people could listen to this podcast. And when you're saying this white woman is seeing the two black people on a call about how to help her get a friend who's black and that in and of itself leaves like this lingering in your mouth. It's like metallic, like <laughs> kind of throwing up. Yeah. And and one has to know that that act, like even the wanting of that is so rooted in privilege and it's rooted mm. in this assumption yeah. that anything I want, I should have. And so I mm. want to be friends with her and I want her to give me attention and I want to be able to take her places and mm. I want to be able to play with her. And I want, and let's name all the ways that that was actually historically true if a white woman identified somebody that they wanted as their companion, mammy, person to take care of their child, you name the thing. And so it's not that far away. And so this is why the metallic, what I say about not far away is even though years wise, it could be hundreds of years away, but our bodies hold that kind of racial exchange the charge or the uh, power of the historical charge is still in the interaction that took place with Yinka and this woman. And mm. I could feel it when he told me the story, but I have a feeling a lot of white people could be confused and be like, why would that be? And <laughs> it's important to know that a, it's okay to not know that because that's unfortunate. You don't, but your lived experience might not as have yet exposed you to why that's offensive and that's okay. And you may feel shame and guilt for not knowing that, but asking Yinka wouldn't be the right guy and either the black lady on the other guy. And the reason is because we're then asking them to explain offenses that we're making to them while violating them with an offensive act. So it's like doubling on offensive language with an expectation that it's their job to inform us yeah i mean it's almost like i, I get the feeling it's like she's asking us oh did you just make her some like fried chicken or take her some watermelon kind of thing and she'll be her friend i mean that's that's what i'm kind of thinking like she wants something like an inside track like it's like no hey not every black person likes fried chicken not every black person likes watermelon <laughs> Like, well, you're hearing the loaded racial assumptions that could be behind, right? And so again, this is when when white people begin to like dig into this, it's not very far away that we have to dig to start learning. Oh, geez. Oh, that happened. Oh, that happened. Oh, no wonder. No wonder this is uh, is, is a complex unwind. So thank you for that. Yeah, that well, was we ended quite up funny. With the, yeah. We ended up with the conversation by just letting her know it's like, 
first of all, just because she's black, you should not want to be her friend. That's not a good enough reason to be a friend. But if you're just trying to be a good neighbor and see where it goes, it's like the simplest thing is maybe just write her a letter or something and give her your phone number telling her that, oh, you know, I see that you're you're about to have a, a baby. You know, if you would like, you know, help with like food or something, I can order groceries, I can order food delivery for you. It's like that, you could do that. That's more, you know, neighborly. And then it's like, okay, the, the woman wouldn't think that, oh, this is a freaky woman who just wants another black, wants a black friend. It's like, no, this is a neighbor who's looking out for another neighbor. And then that's how friendships actually develop. It's like, you see me as a person, not this like token. And like, I mean, I'll tell you, I know how it feels to be a token. I mean, I, like I said, I grew up in, in the suburbs, you know, white suburbs of Dallas. You know, I've been married twice and I can tell you in my marriages, whenever there's been family pictures, I'm the only person of color. In so you married pictures. two white women? Two white women, even though probably, you know, my parents are probably like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> But, you know, I just feel like, you know, you love who you love. You fall for who you fall for. It doesn't matter. I mean, and like, you know, I I don't ever go into any relationship thinking, you know, I'm interested in this white woman. I'm interested in this Hispanic woman or whatever. It's just more like, you know, are you intelligent enough for me? Are you like, you know, do you have like drive and ambition? Are you compassion? Are you caring? You know, I, I I look more at what's on the inside versus the outside, you know. And Okay, but um, go back to the story. But, so in both of them, yeah. you were the only Black person in both sides of the family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, it's always weird. Like, I, I easily from high school, I, I can point out so many times, like when I was, you know, involved in like some of the like school elections and stuff like that and or different clubs, I would be like the only Black person in the club. And... I would get a lot of flack from other like black kids in there. <laughs> it's like, why are you joining that club? It's like, I don't know. I'm good. It's like, here I am joining the AV class and like all white people. And I like, I'm like, I like audio and video. I like mixing. That's why I did it. But yet, if you look at all the photos, only black person, you know? <laughs> so it's like, I mean, I think that's one reason too, like I really got into sports because then at least I wasn't the only one, you know, playing whatever sport it is. And, but like in life, it always has been that way. Like all my friend groups, I, and I don't know what it is, you know, white people like to gravitate towards me. I don't know what it is. Maybe I just have a good personality or something or a very like non-threatening, you know, black personality or that they just are drawn to. But I don't, I never really see it as like a negative until like certain things happen, which like one incident <laughs> I was friends with this one person. So at one point I was working for Southern Methodist University. And so, you know, it's already like a majorly white school as it is in the heart of Dallas. And, you know, it's one of these schools where they used to say women don't go there for an education. They go for their marriage license, <laughs> which I was like, that's kind of messed up. But uh, I can, I remember I, was hanging out with the lot uh, like the group of friends and stuff for like a couple of years. And like at one point, this one girl who had moved from Arkansas, funny enough, to Dallas, and she was part of a whole friend group and stuff like that. And we were at a party. And so she was like, you know, oh, does anybody, you know, does anybody know where, you know, we can get some weed? And then like, Yinka, you're black. Where can we get some weed? 
<laughs> nah. Yes, she did. Uh-uh. And I'm like sitting there, like, what the fuck? Because did I'm you black, just say that? He just said that. And of course, everybody was just kind of like acting like it's just a, you know, oh yeah, you know, you are black. You should know drug. Funny enough, I actually do knew somebody, I did know somebody who did sell it, but he was white. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, I was, I don't know, it was, it was kind of like, it took me by shock, but then I'm like, I mean, I guess I kind of like, yeah, I can expect her to think that way. And, you know, I didn't correct her or anything like that. I mean, I just, you know, I just punished her by marking up the press. <laughs> that's funny. They pay double for it. But yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. A lot of people will have that assumption of like, oh, because you're black, you should be able to like, you know, do this or you know this. And but then that also goes into this whole area of like the the fear of a black person. So like in my dating world, you know, through the years, it's been like very eye awakening I could say when you have like a lot of these like women who have this idea of like oh gotta I gotta marry or I gotta date this like African prince this like you know black whatever I mean I literally have women you know approach me in that way all the you're time you're kidding what because yeah. they hear that you're of African descent so they're talking about an African prince oh yeah the people will see my name or and then no. all of a sudden it's like yeah or hear it and it's like this idea of like oh you're like the you know the ultimate you know my ultimate dream of I'm destined to marry a blah blah I'm like or I'm like hey I'm not this is marry. a white woman this is a white oh, yeah. woman yeah I will wow. say I've heard, this has come from 99.9 percent .9 of the white women I have ever dated except for the two that I've buried. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny but yeah it's just this idea and then like also the idea of like being this African man that you have like this like like very like strong huge like sexual prowess where you're like you know you can hypnotize any or get any woman to sleep with you you take advantage of them and it's like how is that even a thing but when you think about it that is how the slave owners treated, you know, the all the black, the, I guess all the African slaves that they brought over, the men were treated as like, almost like breeding stock sometimes. Like, you know, they find the perfect male specimen who's strong and had the kind of mindset that they wanted to control and have and force them to, you know, sleep with multiple women to produce certain, you know, offsprings. You know, but then it's also that same thing where like, you know, you know, the the master's wife has this like, you know, she's like sexually aroused <laughs> by every, you know, half naked black man running around in her yard and she sleeps with them and then ends up with the mixed baby and then all hell breaks loose. But it's like, you know, and it's always, oh, it's his fault, you know, because he's African, he's black, he's a savage, he's animalistic it's like that's always like the mentality and it's such a like a white cliche thing to believe and say and people don't even recognize when they have that thought process you know it's like approach somebody that like oh you're a good-looking man it's like you don't have to say oh you're a good-looking black man it's like i don't you don't have to add the black man in that to really 
you know, acknowledge what I look like. And, you know, it's like, and, and I will say, I do kind of excuse older women for what they say. You know, I've had one woman approach me in the grocery store and like, she was like eyeing me. She was probably like 70 or something, 75. And she approached me and I thought that was kind of weird. I'm like, why are you approaching me? Kind of thing. But then she like, she looks at me and she's like, her whole thing, oh, he's like, were you ever a football player? I'm like, mm, yeah, at one point. It's like, I thought so, because you're just so muscular and buff. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'm like, this is like a grocery store. And like, who does that? You know, and it's like, it's, it's this weird thing of like, this white woman is coming up to me, asking me because she wants to know if I was an athlete because I look, I'm just so buff. Like, I have never heard that. I've never heard any of my white guy friends ever say, some woman walked up to me at a grocery store and asked if I was an athlete. It's like, no, who does that? But it's like, she had like this, like freedom <laughs> to approach me and just say that. And I don't know, it was, it was kind of weird, but like, and everybody around me that heard it, it was like, like, you know, just a comic, like a comedic thing. Everybody was just laughing. And, you know, I kind of had to laugh about it because it was just, you know, it's like, who does that? You know, people are well-meaning, but like, they don't know how to say things properly. They don't know how to approach people properly. And it's the simple things of like, when, you, when you're walking in the street and some random person is like, I support black people. Like, good for you. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to. <laughs> like what do you want me to do with that like what is that exactly. how is that helpful for humanity what does that yeah, demonstrate me, how does that help me trust you more how does that yeah. let me know that i'll be safe in your presence right if it's something happened right now yeah yeah it's all about like the bandwagon and like you know if like if you're not able to like step up and like stop some racist thing going on in a grocery store or in a parking lot it's like, what is it that if you come up to me and say, I like black people, it's like, I don't care. I like chocolate. I'm not, what yeah. was I be? <laughs> like, why are you telling me? Because it ain't affecting yeah. my life, you know? Nothing you're oh, doing yeah. is yet impacting. I, I want to, I want to just say, you just dropped so many gems in this, this last one here. <laughs> um, seriously, mm. I'm just like, because mm. it's so loaded. Like, I you pass through and just be like, yeah, I didn't say anything, but everybody noticed. It was just, you know, I want to say how much that's coded with whiteness, you know, that, mm. like you said, that you felt like you could just come into my space and say that, like um, yeah. going back to the buck, you know, buck, the, the breeding, right. Black men's mm. bodies were buck. They, they, you, they were, you, they were sexualized and yeah. they were predatorized. So mm. it was either savage or, this right and mm -hmm. sort of understand like what you said was that somebody can have like these well-meaning phrases or this kind of approach mm -hmm. that you just said comes up to you and while it seems like not a big deal like a well-meaning thing it's actually so historically weighted in something that could turn so violent so fast and you would be the the uh the victim of that right but not it because of any actual interaction but because of historical agency where this white woman's agency would take precedence over anything else taking place 
And so for somebody well-meaning to, you know, just to make a comment, like for us to not know the weight that the things we're doing carries is mm. why we can say it's violent. It's violent mm. because it's coming from such an ignorant place without realizing, wow, we might be thinking, I'm just saying something nice to this big black fellow in, in the grocery store. But yo, like, and? Like, you have no mm. right to. Keep it to yourself, you know? Write in your journal, you know? I don't know what the thing is, right? But have a personal <laughs> process because yeah. you don't have the right to somebody to just go up to somebody in some random way that is is, is rather strange and offensive, right? Because you're coming into somebody's yeah. personal space and commenting on their, their body. Like, if it was a woman and somebody came up and say, wow, you have such long, large breasts and you have such a curvaceous body, you know? That would that we could register that as violation in the verbal exchange. So we have to begin to understand the context of how that could verbal exchange with a well-meaning person could actually be very predat perceived predatory in his body and to anybody yeah. watching it. Yeah. But you know, I mean, who thinks, you know, anybody could be a predator approaching me kind of thing? That's that's always the thing. It's like as soon as like somebody has something in their mind and they can't let go of it and so they start thinking and processing and then you become like their target or their obsession and that whiteness gives them a pass to do yes. and say whatever they want and you literally have to like sit there and take it you know because you can't really you know you can't dispute it because you don't have the power you know, I, I'm this big, strong person. I mean, I I lift a shit ton of weights, but yet that strength doesn't mean shit. <laughs> in in <laughs> that like situation. This, in that situation. She has all the power, you know, and I can't do anything because if I would have reacted or say anything, you know, I would have been the one getting in trouble. I would have had like the store manager coming to me and you know, saying something about, oh, you can't do that to our customers and blah, 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 blah. But it's like, that's the thing you have to, it's every day is like that. And every day you never know what somebody's going to say. I mean, I've even had white homeless people go off on me for stuff <laughs> because I mean, you know, I was in downtown Santa Fe and, you know, walking to like haagen or something. And I passed this, you know, this white homeless guy and he asked me for money. And I'm like, I didn't have any cash on me. And of course he gets pissed and like his comment is, what are you, one of those Cosby kids kind of thing? Like just totally out of the blue. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I, I didn't, I mean, like I was still thinking, but like my reaction to him is like, yeah, I'm an educated black man and you're a poor white man. Bye. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's just like that, even as a, this guy who has nothing can feel like he can like degrade me because I'm black and it's like how you want money. I don't need money. You need the money. And yet you think being offensive to me is going to make me all of a sudden like, oh, yes, you're right. I should just give you. No, it's like I'm not a Cosby kid. What is that? I mean, yeah, it's just it's weird because yeah. like, you know, everybody knows what the Cosby show is. But it's like it's like that's not really portrayed as like a good thing these days <laughs> because it's a little too superficial you know that whole family lifestyle so i don't know it's, it's crazy when people just they go to a whole nother world and a whole nother mindset and you can't really do much about it you just kind of have to like you take it but 
it gets to a point where you just stop taking it and either you like isolate yourself away or you fight back. And so you'll see a lot of like black people who like, I don't want to deal with another white person. I don't want to do this. They close themselves off because they're tired of trying to be people trying to make them the token. They're tired of trying to explain to people the history. They're tired of like having to like, you know, pat their friend, their white friends on the shoulder or on the back that they're doing okay. No, you're not a racist. It's like, it's, you just get tired of that. It's like, you just have to like deal with your shit. And really since like the whole George Floyd thing, you know, and all the protests, it's sad because, you know, black people have been doing these kind of protests for like generations. And it wasn't until there was a huge, like, influx of like white, especially young white Americans getting involved in the protest before it really became this like global movement. And then of course you saw other young white, you know, students, kids in like the UK and Germany and France all doing the same protest. And what a lot of people don't realize is that you know, Black people, Indigenous people have been like screaming and like protesting for years, but nothing will ever change by our voices. The only thing that's going to change the voices is the white voices are going to be the one that's going to change everything that's going on within politics, within policy, all this stuff. And, and I feel like that's sometimes why you, a lot of Black people will tolerate <laughs> white people, because it's almost like, it's a symbiotic kind of relationship. It's like, we need you to do this in order to like equalize the playing field. And for that, we will tolerate and hang out with you for a little bit. Kind of thing. I mean, it is kind of, I mean, it's kind of a crude way to say it, but it's, it's almost that kind of mentality. It's like you're, you're using these people to gain what should have been inherently given to you as a human being, you know, yes. but yeah, it's not it's not happening. So sometimes people, you know, will get offended, but it's like, no, you are like I can speak at every rally, you know, from here to Timbuktu, but the person that makes the change is going to end up being white, you know, because that's who is in power. And, you know, <laughs> like with George Floyd, there was uh, the ex mayor of uh, Minneapolis. I remember she was interviewed about like all the little policy changes and stuff that they were talking about with like, you know, defunding the police and all this stuff. And she had, she said something about, uh, you know, her fear is it the, or the, her biggest fear and biggest worry is it about the, you know, the racists or the Republicans who want to deny all these changes. She said her biggest fear, she was a, she's a white woman, she says, is the liberal white voter is my is who I fear the most when it comes to racial changes. And so the reporter pressed her a little bit like, what do you mean? It's like you have a lot of these liberal people who want to have change, who want to say they, they support change and they want all these freedoms, but they don't want it at the cost of their life and their lifestyle changing. So like them giving up any kind of like land, financial gains or anything, they won't do it. So they will like vote down any kind of, you know, changes that you bring to, 
you know, bring up for the voters. And so it's like, that's that's my biggest fear is that nothing's gonna ever change until those white liberals get over their fear of losing power, losing money, losing status. Resources, you know, there, yeah. there's an alley, you know, when you really start to do this level of dismantling and if you really want to go through it, right? It automatically yeah. means there's an allocation of resources. And I've been seeing that conversation happening more because it's a natural part of the process. When you start yeah. to actually look at what took place and you realize, oh, oh, this theft, oh, this, oh, this, mm -hmm. right? It's a natural part of generational wealth redistribution mm -hmm. in order to really, uh, to for, for equitability, right? Sustainability yeah. and to see oh. things as they are versus the false narratives mm -hmm. that white generational families have been able to uh, create generational wealth on deeply rooted lies that yeah. continue to swirl in everyday history. So it's quite mm -hmm. a, a powerful assessment to say, you know, that white liberal, it's really true. You know, it's like, you can't do performative, like, hey, black person, I stand for you. And yet then mm -hmm. not participate in the ways that it means that we have to look at what are some of the economic resources, not just donating to causes, because you're still looking through the white lens of saying, who can I help? but rather saying, whoa, what generational wealth am I benefiting from that actually doesn't belong to me? Am I willing to have that conversation? And especially <laughs> with parts of my family members that stole it a generation mm -hmm. or two ago, and like yeah. what would be a socially equitable thing to actually have a restorative justice conversation if my, I discover that my family lineage created generational wealth that was rooted in not just slavery, but because that goes back so many years, which has a lot of generational wealth, but also generational wealth, say from reconstruction period, 1920, or, you know, again, 1950s and 60s, like all these different ways in which policies got put in place that oh, yeah. um, embedded white privilege so that we can't see these things. And Yinka, you're just, you're throwing them out there. You're just like, yeah, and this, and it's just, <laughs> there's so much, and it's just, it's so valuable. Mm -hmm. for listeners to take this in and because it's not easy to see it's like being a fish in the water right yeah. and know that by design you're not supposed to see it and it's not your fault so the guilt and the shame that shows up when you start to see it is real mm -hmm. and yeah. the process of it is also real but um mm -hmm. you know having our black friends being tokenized and we go to them to feel like we're validated in our anti-racist journey no, like, no all this stuff is laced with exhaustion for black people don't do it yeah yeah that's so <laughs> true and it's like <laughs> i mean even like the most like diverse white person you know i <laughs> i'll say so like my second wife she you know she's very you know she's the mother of my kids and she had her own kind of like white tendencies and kind of like ingrained things that I started noticing as you know we were together over the years that like one of the biggest things is this whole idea of like so when I'm talking arguing discussing and I get heated and I like you know and I get passionate about it my volume will go up you know and there's this idea of like the angry black man, the angry black woman, that every time you raise your voice, you become this threatening thing. 
And I didn't really think about that in my relationship until like a few times when it was kind of like mentioned, oh, you're scaring me, you know, because you're so loud. And I'm like, I'm just talking to you. How am I scaring you? And it's like, that's, you know, if I have a discussion with my family, if we get heated, get hot, it's like, okay, you know, that's it. And we get over it. But like, there is something about like the white upbringing where that if you are like very heated and very passionate, that's an angry person. That's a threatening person. And I'm just like, it kind of blew me away when I came to that realization. It's like, wow, you know, even somebody that you've been, you've married and you also have kids with could still have this like ingrained like fear of you, you know, like just something. And yeah. Yeah. Because it spawns memory. It spawns memory that isn't so conscious. And so I think this is what's so important to understand as we're unpacking. And I say to understand for white people, as we're unpacking this kind of racial journey that we haven't had to really confront, like we can kind of choose to not deal with it. I'm kind of tired. Let me not deal with it. And that itself is privilege, right? If you inhabit a black or a brown or, or a person of color body, you don't get to just choose to not be, you know, to be tired one day and, and take the day yeah. off. Um, and so starting to recognize that, yeah, you know, there are layers of exhaustion and we have to like learn how to build our own capacity to reconfront historical mm. atrocities, present day atrocities and things that continue to play on and on right and that what's really important to realize is that so much of our unconscious pattern behavior aren't things we're aware of they're things we're unaware of and they usually show up when we're under pressure or extreme fear and so you know going back to what you said yinka about that what it what's the cause of the impetus to change right you could be in an incidence and you watch yourself react in a certain way and you're like that just came out of my mouth that reminds me of my mother, you know, and it can be that, right? That you're, it's not actually you reacting. You, you're absorbed from, you know, from a trauma-informed perspective, you've absorbed a, a trauma memory and that memory is historical. Now, epigenetics tells us that a lot of these memories can be historical generationally, which is why the racial conversation becomes so important because we can hold images of black men and black women that we aren't even conscious that we know we're holding, like savage, or I'm scared of you, or sexualizing them, or all these misnomers that you don't even know you believe because they got embedded into you through parents who didn't unpack that from the 50s and 60s, and they watched a lot of this propaganda on TV in the early Americans. Uh, Like, there was a whole movie on it called uh, the birth of a nation and when you watch yes. the birth of a nation you know the president of the united states watched this movie and commented on it so we have to look at it as kind of like the rhetoric that the united states states stood for and when you watch it through that lens you can see there's a white person wearing black face and the whole thing is all about the black man being a savage and being a predator to the white woman and so if you watch it And then you think about the fact that in the 50s, Woodrow Wilson Wilson actually comments that this represents America today. So these are some (laughs) of the unconscious belief systems living in our bodies about Black men, Black women. And and you might not even know you hold it because that's what historical trauma is. 
And you're yeah. just, you're hitting so many points that I think we have to be willing to unpack and understand why it's complex and why we can't notice it. But it doesn't mean it's not violent every time somebody like Yinka has to receive it every flipping day, you know? And it's, you know, when you, that whole idea of like, this is what America is, it's like, it's that the the white male soldier man, whatever, is going to show up and protect the white woman and take down the savage black man. That's, yeah, and so, that's yes. what the nation was. <laughs> yeah, and so the whole storyline, and then you get to watch mm-hmm. how that storyline re-perpetuates in media today and all of the things mm-hmm. so that what it happens is you get to start recognizing it. Oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is again. So that we're slowly not participating it and then calling it out as it's happening. Because if we aren't, if, if we stay numb to the fact that it it's, doesn't exist, yeah. right? And we just are like, oh my God, or we expect our black friends to teach us how it exists, then yeah. we're not actually building capacity in us to start noticing it. Oh, like, wow, okay, there it is. Because it is painful. You know, it's not gonna not dismantle your life. It's gonna really dismantle stuff because- that's the nature of realizing that we're standing on ground that's not actually, you know, that's actually buried people in its wake. It's not, it's not fresh, new found yeah. land, you know. You know, when you had, uh, before we did this, you had sent that uh, email asking like, you know, kind of like the song and stuff that I kind of like, uh, you know, kind of I'm drawn to. And, you know, it, it's, I really, it took me a while to think about like, what song do I like to hear that does kind of show a representation of what I've kind of gone through and what I see in this whole like you know idealistic world of the of America and you know like pray for me even though it was like from you know Black Panther the movie it was like the lyrics always like they get to me like every simple things of like you know if I won't die for you if I won't kill for you then I spilled this blood for you. And most people just kind of overlook that. But when I hear it, it reminds me of like, you know, in all the wars that America has had, they want, you know, black and brown people to go fight for them. Mm. But then like, they don't do anything once they come back from fighting. It's just kind of like, you're forgotten, you know? And it's like this constant thing of like, if you protest that I'm not going to like, go die for you i'm not gonna go kill for you you know but yet in my own country you know my own blood is gonna get spilled kind of thing so it's like that just those kind of lyrics just reminds me like this is what our nation is like it's like you refuse to fight for something because you know i mean how long has it taken america to acknowledge like the native american code uh, code talkers you know who helped win the freaking war you know and it's like and then even like during the civil war it's like you had a lot of black soldiers fighting, you know, the South. So like, you know, it's just kind of like, it's just so, packed. Know, this, this, it's so packed. It's like, these are just so much history there, but it's like the acknowledgement of the existence of like black and Brown heroes in the military. It's like, yeah, they help us win, but you know, we're not going to give them their freedom. We're not going to give them their rights to vote. We're not going to let them have land. We're not going to do this. It's just, you know, it's the American yeah. way. Use you and then throw you away. <laughs> right. Extraction. You know, which really, if you start really looking at like the imperialistic agenda that the America has led around the world, it really is that. It's extractive, extractive, extractive. And mm. 
you know, so there just ends up being a much bigger conversation than we're even having, but it's a really important one that we're having this one because we got to start somewhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can't have a six hour podcast. That's too long. <laughs> I know, right? I want to thank you because this has been really great. I think um, you just kind of gave us an intro to your song. So I want to play that. Um, as a part of this uh, podcast series, I, I've asked each guest to uh, share a song that um, is meaningful for, for this particular conversation to them. And even though we can't play a full clip of the podcast on uh, our song on this podcast for copyright reasons, I am creating an Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast uh, playlist so that we can have kind of like a listening tour of, of what does it mean to unpack um, this uncomfortable conversation with many, many different people through the language of music, you know? And I think that it it only makes sense because the more trauma-informed healing I do and the more anti, uh, anti-racist um, education I embark on, the more I realize that music is how we've moved through each generation. You know, this has been so a culturally informed process of being able to heal uh, atrocity after atrocity and, and how new things have spawned and new music and new culture has spawned from the necessity to heal amongst each other and and white not white people not included um and i'm saying that because we can celebrate music and culture of other people without extracting mm. and appropriating it there is a way to do it we may need to learn how um but it's an unlearning before it's a learning so that's what this is really really all about um, before we do that, um, any last things you want to say to, to listeners on on whiteness, on well-meaning white people? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want people to, hey, don't think I'm like a hater or something, but, <laughs> you know, because I have biracial kids and like, I definitely believe in them learning, you know, the history of the country they live in. And as you know, white and African, there's a lot of duality that they will have to face and deal with. And I think if children are able to listen and digest the history and understand what's going on, because like, you know, my daughter and my son, they were like, oh, they'll say, oh, that's when people used to own each other. They weren't very smart back then, but, you know, kind of thing. So they'll make comments to like, you know, justify or not justify, but like recognize what has happened. They're not trying to like fix it. They're not trying to like take on a whole history. It's like they have to acknowledge it, but not forget it. And I think that's, if children can do that, adults should have the capacity to see it, recognize it, acknowledge it, and then fix it. You know, because kids can't fix our problems. We got to fix our problems so that they don't have to deal with anything else. So I believe in you people. <laughs> well said, well said. Thank you. Thank you mm-hmm. for the upliftment and, and really just everything that you shared today. It's really, um, it's been it's been priceless to be able to just, I know it's barely even getting started. There's so many more stories that could spawn. We could do another two or three conversations and, and we wouldn't get to, the lifetime of experiences that um, that continue to swirl. You know, I wish I could say, you know, oh, yeah. that used to happen and aren't happening today, but no, they're happening today. They used to happen. It's the same thing. And so that's why as white folks listening, you know, we can do very simple things of digging into of, of history and learning. And, and if you need help with that, you reach out to me, you know, because that's what this is all about. It's about us coming together to really 
resource within each other to start unpacking um, a white ideology that's actually very much rooted in false identity. And it's hurting um, white people and white culture because it means we don't get to create one that's not rooted in, in hatred. And, and that's, it's also hurting uh, you know, other communities, black communities and, and brown and indigenous and, and, and people of all cultures and, and colors but we have to inherently begin to understand how it hurts white folks, that it's hurting us. Um, and, and so th this is our work. Um, I, I thank you for being here. Let's go ahead and um, listen to the song Share, which is The Weeknd and Kendrick Lamar, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay, let's listen here, folks, and see what we got. Where'd it go? I fight you, I fight myself, I fight God, just tell me how many burdens left, I fight pain and hurricanes, today I wept, I'm trying to fight back tears, flood on my doorsteps, life in living hell, puddles of blood in the street, shooters on top of the building, government aid ain't relief, earthquake, the body drop, the ground breaks, the poor run with smoke lungs and scarred face, who need a hero, hero. you need a hero, look in the mirror, there go your hero, who on the front lines at ground zero, hero. my heart don't skip a beat even when hard times bumps the needle, mass destruction and mass corruption, the souls are suffering men clutching on deaf ears again raptures coming it's our prophecy and if i gotta be second and again folks we are not sharing the whole thing but please head on over to the uh, uncomfortable conversations on whiteness podcast playlist and take that all the way in because we didn't even get to the, the good part on that on that track mm -hmm. although there's so many good parts so thank you so much um i really appreciate you sharing here and uh folks all of you listening please remember that dismantling whiteness is an everyday, all day, lifelong endeavor. It does not end. It's a commitment to think, do, and live better than what we've been expected to, or even allowed to before. Dismantling white body supremacy begins inside of you and inside of me and inside of the collective we in our personal commitment, in our own bodies of culture to grow the white experience beyond assumed supremacy. I invite you to listen, to learn, and to grow beyond the limitations that whiteness has continued to, that whiteness has and continues to impose on all of us. If you need support beyond this listening space, you can connect with me at gurunishan.com. And if you'd like to be a guest and share your story, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. Please also like, subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with someone you love. You're listening and sharing support. It's so greatly appreciated. Thanks for tuning in. 
And don't forget to share this with someone who needs to hear it. Thanks for being here, Inka. Oh, thank you. The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Guru Nishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast.